nerds, it's been a minute and I am so glad to be back bringing you a little bit of information today about one of my new favorite joints. I'll explain a little bit why later. Today we are talking about the ever important talo curl joint, also known more commonly as your ankle. Now, your ankle is actually more than just the talocurl joint. Um, it also kind of includes the uh, subtalar joint as well for you know all intents and purposes. But when people talk about the ankle, they usually are only talking about clinically talocurl joint. And so that's what I'm gonna focus on today. So it's kind of a lot to digest because I'm gonna be talking about the joint capsule itself, the bones that make this joint happen, as well as the ligaments that hold it together. So just kind of hang on, listen to the overall description, and then you can go in more detail piece by piece, following along if you like in your anatomy book. Today this reading is from Gray's Anatomy, 12th edition. It's in the public domain, it's free. If you find it on a public domain website, the information because anatomy doesn't really change, is still pretty much up to date. And if I notice anything along the way that I've been taught differently, I'll be sure to point that out. So without further ado, let's do a little reading on the talocurl joint. The ankle joint is a jinglimus. I have never heard this word before. <laughs> Let's back it up. I'm gonna skip that part. The ankle joint is a hinge joint. The structures entering into its formation are the lower end of the tibia and its malleolus, the malleolus of the fibula, and the transverse ligament, which together forms a mortise for the reception of the upper convex surface of the talus and its medial and lateral facets. The bones are connected by the following ligaments. The articular capsule, the deltoid ligament, the anterior talofibular ligament, ATFL commonly called, the posterior talofibular ligament, and the calcaneofibular ligament. A little bit on the articular capsule. The articular capsule surrounds the joints and is attached above to the borders of the articular surfaces of the tibia and malleoli and below to the talus around its upper articular surface. The anterior part of the capsule, the anterior ligament, is a broad, thin, membranous layer attached above to the anterior margin of the lower end of the tibia. Below to the talus in front of its superior articular surface. It is in relation in front with the extensor tendons of the toes, the tendons of the tibialis anterior and peroneus tertius, and the anterior tibial vessels and deep peroneal nerve. The posterior part of the capsule, the posterior ligament, is very thin and consists principally of transverse fibers. It is attached above to the margin of the articular surface of the tibia, 
blending with the transverse ligament below to the talus behind its superior articular facet. Laterally, it is somewhat thickened and is attached to the hollow on the medial surface of the lateral malleolus. Moving on to the deltoid ligament, which is technically four ligaments together. We'll go into more detail now. The deltoid ligament is a strong, flat, triangular band attached above to the apex and interior and posterior borders of the medial malleolus. It consists of two sets of fibers, superficial and deep. Of the superficial fibers, the most anterior, tibionavicular, pass forward to be inserted into the tuberosity of the navicular bone, and immediately behind this, they blend with the medial margin of the plantar calcaneonavicular ligament. The middle, or calcaneotibial, descend almost perpendicularly to be inserted into the whole length of the sustentaculum tally of the calcaneus. The posterior fibers, posterior talotibial, pass backward and lateral to be attached to the inner side of the talus and to the prominent tubercle on its posterior surface, medial to the groove for the tendon of the flexor hallucis longus. The deep fibers, or anterior talotibial fibers, are attached above to the tip of the medial malleolus and below to the medial surface of the talus. The deltoid ligament is covered by the tendons of the tibialis posterior and flexor digitorum longus. So that was the deltoid ligament, which is on the medial side of the ankle, the medial aspect of the ankle. Now we're moving over to the lateral side and a little bit in front and a little bit be behind. So anterior, posterior, lateral. The anterior and posterior talofibular and the calcaneofibular ligaments were formally described as the three fasciculi of the external lateral ligament of the ankle joint, just FYI. But let's talk about them separately. The ATFL, anterior talofibular ligament. If you're going into physical therapy, especially orthopedics, or if you're going to medical school and planning to focus on orthopedics, or even probably general practice, you're gonna hear about the ATFL quite a bit because it's very much involved in ankle sprains. So the anterior talofibular ligament passes from the anterior margin of the fibular malleolus forward and medially to the talus in front of its lateral articular facet. Now moving on to the posterior talofibular ligament. So this is the posterior friend of the ATFL. The posterior talofibular ligament is the strongest and most deeply seated of these lateral ligaments. Runs almost horizontally from the depression at the medial and back part of the fibular malleolus to a prominent tubercle on the posterior surface of the talus immediately lateral to the groove for the tendon of the flexor hallucis longus. And again, another ankle sprain ligament culprit involved here with the calcaneofibular ligament. 
the calcaneofibular ligament is the longest of these three ligaments and it is a narrow rounded cord running from the apex of the fibular malleolus downward and slightly backward to a tubercle on the lateral surface of the calcaneus and it is covered by the tendons of peroneus longus and brevis. Now moving on to the synovial membrane. The synovial membrane invests the deep surfaces of the ligaments and sends a small process upward between the lower ends of the tibia and fibula. Now moving on to what Gray refers to as relations, which is all the other stuff that comes around this joint. The tendons, vessels, and nerves in connection with this joint, the talocural joint, are in front from the medial side, the tibialis anterior, extensor hallucis propius. That's an old term. I'm going to go with that as a term for plain old extensor hallucis longus because that is the extrinsic muscle. Um, anterior tibial vessels, deep peroneal nerve, extensor digitorum longus, and peroneus tertius are all on that medial side in front of the joint. Now behind from the medial side, we have the tibialis posterior, flexor digitorum longus, posterior tibial vessels, tibial nerve, flexor hallucis longus, and in the groove behind the fibular malleolus, the tendons of peroneus longus and brevis, also known as fibularis longus and brevis, depending on where you learned your anatomy. The arteries supplying the joint itself are derived from the malleolar branches of the anterior tibial and peroneal arteries. The nerves are derived from the deep peroneal and tibial nerve. Now Gray goes on to talk about movements, which I'm just going to say, to keep it simple, we're talking dorsi and plantar flexion. So this talocrural joint is simply involved in bringing the toes up closer to the tibia, up closer to the shin bone, that is dorsiflexion, and pointing the toes down ballerina style toward the floor, like when you go to uh, stand on your tippy toes, that is plantar flexion. And these two movements are extremely important functionally speaking. So I'm going off, off script here. We're going away from gray here for a minute. Um, just to say that dorsiflexion is critical in gait. And if you're preparing for PT school, you're going to be taking classes on gait. You're going to be doing a lot of gait analysis. So I'll save all the nitty gritty for that um, for another time. We can talk about gait in a later episode. But just know that dorsiflexion is responsible for foot clearance and gait. So when you're swinging your foot forward, if you don't have enough dorsiflexion range of motion, for example, that's one reason why you might not get clearance and your toe may scuff or drag. Um, very, very important. And if we are going to be treating in clinic uh, lacking dorsiflexion, we are going to be mobilizing this joint, mobilizing the talus 
on the tibia. So on the flip side, we can also talk about plantar flexion. Plantar flexion is that ballerina toe point motion. And you can think of it, I know it's kind of confusing because in other joints we talk about flexion and extension when we're talking about sagittal plane motion. So it could get a little confusing when you come to the foot and ankle because now we're saying other terms, right? We're talking about dorsiflexion, plantar flexion. Why are they both flexion? This is so confusing. Well, when you talk about the hand and the foot, you're gonna be talking about the dorsum or dorsal surface and the plantar surface or palmar surface if you're in the hand. So just know that this is still sagittal plane and you can think of plantar flexion as the extension of the ankle joint. And you can think of dorsiflexion as the flexion of the ankle joint but do get used to using these different terms if you're not already used to them yourself. Now, when we talk about gait, for example, again, just to go back to gait since we discussed it with dorsiflexion, plantar flexion often becomes a problem, but not for lack of range. It's actually, when we talk about gait deviations, being in too much plantar flexion is often a huge problem in gait. So for example, if we talk about the neuropopulation, maybe somebody who has had a stroke, a CVA, also known as cerebral vascular accident, um, oftentimes patients pre present with hemiplegia. And this can cause all sorts of motor control issues. But one thing in particular that happens with a lot of stroke patients is they get a plantar flexion contracture or um, spasticity of their plantar flexors. So for example, their soleus, their gastroc, so their calf muscles become um, problematically, uh, mm, I don't want to say non-responsive, but they kind of get their own ideas when it comes to motor control. So this can often cause these patients and other types of neurologic patients as well, such as um, cerebral palsy patients, to have too much plantar flexion when it comes to gait. And this also creates a problem when it comes to uh, swing foot clearance in our gait patterns. And this can cause all sorts of compensations that patients will adopt to try to just get their foot through. So for example, um, another compensation for gait might be uh, excessive hip flexion to bring that foot through without scuffing the toes. They could also do a circumduction pattern gait where they're taking a circular motion, swinging the leg out to the side as they come through. And if you think about um, the energy costs associated with these compensations of gait, these patients are expending so much more energy just to simply perform their activities of daily living, just to walk, go places, run errands, you know, live their lives. And so even just the simple task of walking that many of us take for granted becomes a huge energetic task, energetic challenge and drain for patients that have problems with dorsi and plantar flexion. Um, as well, we can even go a little further into what are then the costs down the line, not just energetically speaking, but what kind of wear and tear is that going to create 
in a joint when it's, you know, for example, the hip joint. If the hip is constantly circumducting, going in a circular pattern, just to go through a simple swing phase of gait as you bring your foot forward to take your next step, that has a potential of putting extra stresses on that joint over a long period of time. You think of how many steps we're supposed to be taking in a day, for example. You know, all the apps and the Fitbits, and they all want us to take 10,000 steps a day. Well, can you imagine 10,000 times a day bringing, or I guess it'd be half of that, right? Because step, 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 right, left, right, left. 5,000 times a day taking a joint through an abnormal motion is probably going to create some wear and tear down the line. And as a result, you know, um, somebody who presents first problem being the, the stroke and the motor control issues of just the cost of getting around, the difficulty of getting around, now they're having orthopedic issues on top of that. It creates a problem. So um, those two motions, going back to the talocural joint, dorsi and plantar flexion are happening there. Now, earlier I mentioned as Gray refers to it, is still referred to, by the way, as a mortis joint. So if you're unfamiliar what a mortis is, I would direct you to um, look at a, actually an example of woodworking. There's a specific type of joint in woodworking called a mortis and tenon joint. And if you look and compare pictures online of a mortis and tenon joint in you know woodcraft, it looks a lot like the the shape created by the talocrural joint because we have the malleoli and that shelf created by the distal part of the tibia um, that create the mortise and then the talus just fits right in between. Um, I wish I could draw this out for you, but it's basically, it looks like the bottom half of an, a capital H letter and then like a little block that goes right up in the bottom part of the H letter. So that is why it is called the mortise joint. There's biomechanical uh, consequences of this joint, which I can go into um, more detail in a further episode, but uh, very fascinating joint. Now, I and, and fascinating for how simple it is, right? It's got a lot of supportive uh, structures surrounding, and so much is passing uh, in front of this joint, powering the foot, you know, if we think of all of the actions, not just dorsi and plantar flexion, but all of the actions that the foot must take to get through a simple act such as gait, which, you know, we'll talk more about in detail in the future, uh, because there's so much more happening at the foot than just dorsi and plantar flexion. A lot of that control, so much of that control is extrinsic control coming from, um, higher up on the tibia, a lot of those muscles that control the action of the foot are seated, originating on the tibia, the shin bone. So we call that extrinsic control because those are external muscles from the foot that have a long lever and those tendons travel a long way to control the toes, to control all the little bones of um, the midfoot, the rear foot, etc. So really fascinating joint and a great introduction to the ankle and foot complex. Now I mentioned earlier that I was going to talk about why this joint is actually suddenly of interest to me and that is because in 
these times of COVID, I have actually taken up the sport of road cycling. So I've been a road cyclist actually for several years, since 2012 is when I first bought my road bike. And great story there. It was a incredible find on Craigslist. I got like a great deal on this bike. And um, I bought it at the time because my my former partner was a road cyclist and also I had some coworkers who were cyclists and they would all go on Saturdays in the morning and go on these long training rides. So I got interested and, and in fact, one of my good friends from my soccer team was also a cyclist and interested in getting me on these longer rides. So um, long time ago, I got the bike and I've been a pretty casual road cyclist, you know, on, on Strava, you can see my, my uh, history from way back when was not a lot of miles. But then COVID came and I actually lost my job at a large gym company, a large fitness company here in the United States. And um, that was due to COVID. So I also, with that, lost my access to fitness facilities. And of course with COVID, they all shut down everywhere. Nobody had access to fitness facilities. And um, that included on my campus. Our campus gym also closed. So I was in this great routine prior to COVID of lifting weights and just had this, you know, I had my fitness routine kind of down. And I was also teaching spin classes for a while, not at that point up until COVID, but a, a bit prior to COVID, I had taught spin classes and I taught yoga and that was, that was my thing. I really loved doing that. And then all of a sudden, poof, in an instant, that was all gone. And I found myself just reeling, you know, being such an active person to having nowhere to go. We're all quarantining, stuck in our houses in isolation and I live in an apartment by myself with my dogs. So I literally was just, I don't know what to do. And while a lot of my classmates actually took up running or became more serious runners if they were already runners, I, <laughs> I had um, surgery on my knee about 22 years ago that now is starting to cause some knee problems for me. And that's not my aside to say don't get knee surgery. That's absolutely not what I'm saying. But as a result, you know, that surgery, I got an ACL surgery when I was in high school to play soccer. And I am so glad that I did because of all of the life that that opportunity afforded me to have in the last 22 years. But now one of the consequences of that is that um, I have patellofemoral pain. So running just doesn't really it doesn't really work for me at least running on pavement you know if it's a soccer game that's different but anyway long story my classmates got into running and I got into cycling I took around a look around I had um, very little fitness fitness equipment at my disposal and I took a look in my garage and there was my bike and my god has that thing been godsend for me in the last almost year. So in the last year, I put about 2,000 miles on my bike, which is probably equivalent to the amount of miles that I rode 
you know, in the six years prior. So I basically started this routine of, you know, incorporating cycling into my week almost every day. And so with that, I have recently gotten interested, become interested in the aspect of the sport of cycling, which is bike fitting. And I can go into much more detail about this on a later episode because that's a whole nutshell all in itself. But all is to say is, especially when you get more into how power works on the bike, biomechanics becomes very important. The talocrural joint is very important in the sport of cycling because there's a lot of talk about how the biomechanics of your pedal stroke can influence how fast you go and there is quite a bit of discussion and things to consider in regards to pedal placement, cleat placement, seat placement um, in order to have the, the optimal bike fit so that the power generated from your hips with your glutes, your quads, all of that translates through the ankle into dorsium plantar flexion, which powers the whole bike. So that is all to say, I love the tail curl joint. And, um, you know, also as a result of cycling, I've just become very interested in the whole foot and ankle complex. So please know that if you are intimidated by this, this aspect of anatomy, which I know is tough. You get to the foot and ankle in your anatomy classes and you probably <laughs> take a pause because uh, you're looking at it and you're like, I don't know what all these bones are. What What is this? They all look the same, <laughs> right? So at some point you're just like, shoot. But I'm here to tell you how important and interesting feet and ankles can be if you just put the time in and find a reason for this material to become salient and relevant to you. And I promise if you do that, it will become a lot more fun. So that's my soapbox for today. Always talking about how to make anatomy relevant to your personal life and how that is one of the best ways to learn, the best ways to study. So I hope you've all had a wonderful last several months since I last spoke with you. You know, we're getting through this COVID thing together. I actually got my first uh, vaccine today. I'm so grateful. So grateful. Uh, I hope you're doing well and hanging in there. And please feel free, as always, to reach out on Instagram at Nikki-Ray. I've had a couple people reach out, and it's really exciting to hear, you know, that um, people care about this stuff. So take care. I wish you well. And if you have a request for a future episode... Just send me a DM and I will try my best to work it in soon. Thanks. Good night.